This is the Conversion Aid Podcast, episode 33. Welcome to the Conversion Aid Podcast, where we help software entrepreneurs to take their business to the next level. Each week, we interview proven industry experts who share their strategies and insights to help you create software that sells. Here's your host, Omer Khan. Hey everyone, welcome to the Conversion Aid Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the podcast for software entrepreneurs and companies who want to grow their business to the next level and create software that sells. Today's interview is with Gabriel Weinberg. Gabriel is the founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo, the search engine that doesn't track you with over a billion searches in 2013. He's also an angel investor and co-author of Traction, a startup guide to getting customers. Gabriel has been featured on CBS, Fox, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and more. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thanks. My pleasure. Before we talk about DuckDuckGo, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Who is Gabriel when he's not working? Well, I have a three and a five-year-old, both boys, and I'm basically a dad. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. (laughs) Two boys. Wow. That's going to keep you busy. Indeed, it does. <laughs> yeah, I, I, have a, I have a boy and a girl, so I kind of feel like we have a little bit more balance in the, in the house. <laughs> it's a lot of uh, physical altercations, if you will. <laughs> I bet. Now, we like to kick things off with a success quote to better understand what drives and motivates our guests. What is one of your favorite quotes? Ooh. Um, so I just came across a new, a a relatively new one that really resonates with me. And it is by uh, Charlie Munger, who's, um, you know, a financial advisor in his own right, but known as Warren Buffett's right hand man. And I'm going to get it right here. Sometimes I munge it. Here it goes. I never allow myself to have an opinion on anything that I don't know the other side's argument better than they do. Um, and it really resonates with me because in terms of like corporate strategy and thinking about what you're doing with your business and um, it's all about making strategic arguments. And I see a lot of people get caught up in optimism about their arguments, but not really understanding the other side. And so I think it's important to understand all sides of the issue. I've never heard that one before. I think that's a, that's a great one. Okay, let's start by giving our listeners a better understanding of DuckDuckGo. Tell me a little bit about who your target customers are and what are the pain points that you're trying to solve for them? So, okay, so DuckDuckGo is a general search engine, just like Google, and you can you can switch to it today and really never look back. Um, and so in that sense, the target audience is everyone who uses Google, which is basically <laughs> everyone. Um, but specifically, we're focused on a number of things that we think that Google um, can't do easily for various reasons. One is privacy. So you mentioned up front, you know, we don't track um, users at all. Um, and the second is instant answers. So we focus on these answers above the results. And you've seen some of those on Google if you're a Google user. But what we're trying to do is that whole area is open source, and we're trying to get really long-tail answers. So answers for all different areas um, that for your intricate hobbies. So if you're interested in, like, Legos or bioinformatics, we want answers for all of that. Um, and then the third piece is design. You know, we just focus on web search. We don't have a social network or other things that clutter up the results. Um, And we try to go for an overall, you know, cleaner design. And our argument is those things, you know, real privacy, uh, cleaner design, and better answers appeal to a significant percentage of people. 
Um, and we think that's, you know, 10, 20%. And so we're just focused on appealing to that percentage. What were you doing before you started DuckDuckGo? So I, um, 35, I started doing startups right out of school when I was 20 um, and ran some unsuccessful things and then um, ran a successful startup or mildly successful startup for a few years, 2003, 2006, was like an early social networking company um, and sold that in 2006. And then that was all in Boston. And then I moved to Philadelphia, outside Philadelphia where I live now and essentially started over to said I want to start a new company. And um, I took a year and a half off and tried to explore, I don't know if you call it off, but I, a year and a half exploration of kind of what to do next for the next kind of decade. And that was in 2007. So here we are. I started DuckDuckGo kind of again in 2008. So we're now in 2014. <laughs> um, so I feel like I, that process went well. So the, the immediate thing before doing DuckDuckGo was figuring out what to do. <laughs> okay. Now, before we talk about that, tell me about one of the uh, startups that you worked on before DuckDuckGo that didn't work out, right? I mean, I think quite often we see the, the, the successes and we hear those stories, but it's always great to hear about those same people also going through struggles and failures. Yeah, so I, you know, I have a bunch of those. <laughs> um, but my first startup, so you, you kind of start there, right out of school, was an educational software company called LearnAction. And uh, besides the name, that was one of the problems, but that's, that wasn't its more fundamental problem. Um, the, the general idea was to increase parental involvement in schools by giving parents. So how, how old is um, your son and daughter? So my daughter is six and my son is nine. Okay, exactly that age group. So I was hoping in, in K, you know, elementary school to give you more a sense of what's going on in the classroom every day um, and more direct communication with the teacher and, and things like that. Um, that kind of stuff is just starting to happen now. I'm not sure what it's like in your school district, but with my son who's in kindergarten now, it's like you can't really figure out what he's doing every day. And um, the communication with the teacher is not great. Uh, maybe yours is better. But in any case, back in 2000, it was non-existent. And I thought, you know, all the, all the tools for this were, were, were available then, just as they are now. I mean, nothing has fundamentally changed there. Uh, it didn't need to be mobile or anything. Um, but for, for lots of structural reasons, that was not going to happen for another decade. And so that was the, the, the major problem there, as I was essentially a decade too early on that idea. Yeah, I think yeah, I think we're pretty lucky with our school and um, uh, the the communication. I think has no, has got better and better, and we have a much better view of what's going on with with our kids. And and it's funny because when I was at school, my parents didn't have a clue what I was doing. Right? It was just it was like <laughs> I was going to a different world, and um, unless they heard about um, something bad I'd done, um, they didn't, they didn't really know what was going on. Um, exactly. Totally blind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the early days of DuckDuckGo. So you went on this sort of exploration period. Um, how did you come up with the idea for building uh, another search engine? Well, okay. So th this this process has evolved. I, I did the process, the same kind of process or idea before starting the company before DuckDuckGo, which eventually got sold and. Over time, I've 
I've kind of changed my advice here for people. And one thing I realized that basically took me, I guess I was 27 when I started Arctica, that took me the first seven years to learn was, you know, I really wasn't thinking uh, big enough, um, which is really hard advice to give people because they can't really internalize it until they kind of have 50 moments. So I won't dwell on it. <laughs> but really what it, what it means is, you know, a lot of idea, ideation and what I had done before, even though I was mildly successful, was kind of trying to think of business ideas um, and inefficiencies in the marketplace and how that might, you know, get you a good software idea that could make a million bucks, right? Um, which sounds like the right approach, but I realized that it's not the right approach. And that really the right approach is to say, okay, what are big areas of software that are unfolding big markets and which ones of those am I particularly passionate about? Um, and then try to start there and say, okay, I'm passionate about this area. I could spend the next decade working in this area. Now let's do an ideation process just around that area. Um, so that's what I did this last time around. And I realized, you know, I'm interested in data. And um, that's the big um, theme of that I was writing on, you know, kind of, I wouldn't have, I wasn't calling it big data at the time, but the idea of, you know, there's more and more structured data, there's more and more APIs, um, there's more and more cool things to do with this data coming online all the time. What could I do in that area? And so I started thinking of projects around that and I started exploring those. And those, a bunch of those side projects came in just kind of, some of them were about augmenting Google and saying, oh, Google's not great at this or that. Maybe I could augment it. And then I realized, well, maybe I could put these together and just, you know, see if people would be interested in a search engine. And so that's how it came about. I didn't really set out trying to build a search engine or get into that. I was more thinking broadly, I'm interested in this area. I think it's going to be a big area in the future. You know, I'm going to go explore it and see what pops out of it. Okay. <clears throat> so, you know, I think the barriers to entry in the search business are really high, right? I mean, you need engineering talent, you need servers that can support millions, if not billions of searches, and, and you need to have scale to really make the economics of a search engine work. Didn't all of that put you off from getting into this business? So my insight on it was slightly different, and that's why I could start it by myself, which was that, you know, you can look at this two ways. One is the harder problem in search engines, because there's a history of search engine startups that all raised, you know, like $50 million and went bust, right? Um, and they attacked the problem head on. Like, let's just buy a bunch of servers and start spending money and copy it and stuff like that. Um, I realized that approach wasn't going to work. The harder problem is actually coming up with something that people want to switch to because there wasn't much of a necessarily a pain point people were having with Google. Um, and so I, I came at it from that angle and from the data angle. And my thought was, you know, what if you treat the links as commodity and you try to get them from somewhere else? And so you don't spend all the money crawling the internet. And, um, even though I did start crawling, but, um, you don't, you don't try to copy the whole internet to your servers, which is where the money comes from, uh, where it costs so much money. And instead you focus on where you maybe could add value and what might actually get people to switch. So in my mind, those ended up being, you know, privacy, that's a, that's a real differentiator that actually doesn't cost money. Um, and two, APIs. Um, all these other companies were producing more and more structured data. I think, you know, Wikipedia, Yelp, IMDb. And by using them, you're essentially getting 
you're kind of leapfrogging Google by getting the best data out there because they're focused on that data. Um, and your job is more classification and say, okay, this query is about movies. I'm going to get the best result from IMDb. Um, and so I was looking at it from that angle uh, because both of those are things that you don't have to, you, you don't need that excessive capital to start. And you're right. If you, if you go head on, you essentially need a billion dollars a year. I mean, that's essentially what uh, Bing has been spending on, on that crawling piece. How, how much money did you need to get that first version of the product built? Uh, essentially nothing. I mean, uh, on the order of, you know, $10,000 or something. Um, you know, that's not counting my time, obviously, but no one counts their time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, basically nothing. Okay. So what did you do to go in and start validating this idea? So I, you know, probably went too far down without validation, <laughs> but the initial validation was, you know, put something up on, you know, tech areas, Reddit, Hacker News in, in this case, and just see what kind of interest there were. I wanted to know, you know, are people fundamentally interested in a new search engine at all, you know, or, or is that such a ridiculous notion that I should just stop? Um, and so I got to a point where I felt I could at least share it with the world. Now, I, I probably went too far down that and, and did some premature optimization and things like that, which you shouldn't be doing. But, you know, it was still pretty terrible when I launched it. I mean, like, really terrible. Probably took another two years before you, you'd actually, somebody would actually want to switch to it. But that was a validation point. And I put it out there, and there was a lot of interest. I mean, I, I think people were less potentially interested in what I actually developed <laughs> but and more interested in the idea that there could be an alternative with these properties. Um, and that was really encouraging and kept me going on the project. I think if there wasn't that kind of reaction, I would have stopped. So looking back at those early days, what do you think was one of the biggest mistakes that you made? So, um, you know, it's weird because like I was saying before, I think the bigger problem in search engines is figuring out something that'll entice people to switch, right? It's not a technical problem per se. You need to know which feature to actually build. Um, and I probably spent too much time building certain features that ultimately weren't going to work and it probably could have been smaller tests of them. And so it took me a long time to kind of hit on the array of things that it's up to go now that make it a nice search engine to switch to. Um, and that probably could have been reduced. Another mistake was, um, you know, I self-funded and, you know, did ramp by myself since we were three and a half years. Um, and, you know, that could have been compressed uh, a bit quicker if I, had put more money into it or raised money to hire people earlier. Um, I, I wouldn't have hired people that earlier, but we got, I'd say, early product market fit maybe two years in, and it was another year before I really raised uh, venture capital, um, and I could have done that earlier. Okay, so you launched DuckDuckGo in 2008, and so you've been at this for about six years. At what point did you feel like you were getting some meaningful traction with this business? At the end of 2010, um, we were named, it was like Time Magazine's top 50 websites of the year, something like that. 
Um, and that was, that was the turning point for me, um, where, you know, it was, an, it was, I know that's like a press thing. It's kind of, you know, it's some random, um, author who I, I like, but it's still one person's opinion, <laughs> but, it, but in any case, it was like, it was an explanation of a moment that was clearly happening where, you know, various features and relevancy and all these things came together where it, it you could see it in the, in the data to uh, adoption conversion curves off of like press hits and things like that. You know, there was, it was a point where people were starting to switch and you could call that product market fit, but that's really the point. Okay. So how many people do you have working at DuckDuckGo now? We have about um, 30 people, 20, around 20 or so are, are kind of what you would probably call traditional employees. <laughs> but we have, we have a lot of uh, part-time people as well. Okay. I mean, this really blew my mind because um, when, when I was doing some research and I got a sense of how many people you had working there, now, as you know, I used to be part of the Bing team at Microsoft, and and you know there were thousands of engineers working on search, um, and Google has you know even more than that. So, what are you doing? How 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 are you doing this differently? You talked a little bit about this earlier, but just tell me a little bit more about how, how are you able to run a search business with just thirty people? Right. So, I think the main. Um so I guess there's, there's two kind of, maybe three ways to answer that. One is there's whole areas that you, you know, you were doing at Bing that we're not doing right. And we're essentially using Bing, um, for, for some of that heavy lifting. Right. Um, but I think it's even more fundamental than that. We're using, you know, all sorts of companies for the heavy lifting, like I referenced IMDB and, um, Wikipedia. We actually have, uh, over 300 instant answer sources now. Um, and those basically represent, another company with, you know, their own employee base who are working day in and day, not day in and night making, um, you know, good structured data that would be useful for a search engine. And we we're using that. So we're essentially leveraging the open internet, um, and data and APIs. And so our effective, you know, people working to make DuckDuckGo better is, is, is orders of magnitude greater than the people who actually work for DuckDuckGo. Um, and that was possible at a moment in time when we started, and that was kind of my thesis. Um, and so that, I think that's the largest part of it. Um, I think, you know, the way we've grown our team, um, I, I'd say if you're going to put orders of magnitude, that's probably an order of magnitude difference, right? There's probably a factor of two or three difference with the actual people we've hired. We've been very slow to hire. We only essentially hire people who are extremely effective, often senior people, don't need a lot of management overhead. So there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of efficiency and not a lot of bureaucracy at DuckDuckGo, a lot of autonomy. Um, and so we're probably getting s- stuff done uh, with less people, but that's that's probably a two or three times difference than, you know, a 10 or 20 times difference. Um, I think those are, those are probably the main things. Now, l- looking back at the last few years, what, has been one of the hardest things about building this product and business in your mind? So, I mean, I'd love your uh, reverse take on this, <laughs> you know, um, but mine has been the, the, the thing I keep repeating, which is, you know, this is not necessarily a technology problem um, in the search space. It is a, um, it, the, the problem maybe solved somewhat by technology, but it's more of a, 
psychological slash product problem of what is it, what do you need to do differently to differentiate yourself and get people to want to switch to you? Um, and, you know, you could, and I think Bing has seen this, you could do amazing at search technology, essentially on parity with Google, um, and that's not enough, right? Um, you need to differentiate in some other way. And I, I think that's the hardest problem in search. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, it's no, you know, Google has dominated this business so much that, um, it, it, the, the features that you build just doesn't matter, right? I mean, so many people now don't even think about where they're going to go and search. They just do it, right? Um, yeah. so, so yeah, absolutely. That, that is the number one challenge. I, I totally agree. I mean, you could look at it slightly differently from Bing's perspective and say, because Bing has access to capital, <laughs> large amounts of capital, which we didn't. Um, and you could say, well, that's also a distribution problem, you know, and um, most people still use the default settings. And so if you can get, you know, you can see that in the latest Yahoo deal, you can get default deals better to take away from Google. And it was it was very hard for companies to want to do that because of that decade of people learning, people were scared to maybe change the default to Bing or Yahoo. Um, but from our perspective, we can't even compete for those distribution deals. <laughs> we don't have that. We don't have that amount of money. So everyone who switched to DuckDuckGo, um, you know, is basically doing it on their own volition. And so we have in a sense a harder problem, but in a sense, those constraints have led us down roads that, you know, like a Bing wouldn't do, not because it's, not a good idea, but because Bing's working at a different scale than we are, you know? Um, and so it, it's been interesting. But yeah, the hardest problem for us has been just crafting in a search experience that, you know, really appeals to people that they will want to switch to search engine. So tell me a little bit about the, the size of the business. How many users do you currently have or how many search queries are you handling each month? So we are handling about 230 million search queries a month. Um, and so we're about double from the billion, uh, last year that you quoted, um, and still growing, um, users, we really don't track the users. So I honestly have no idea. <laughs> um, what's interesting is, you know, our user base is probably highly bifurcated in the, in very early adopters who search a lot and then more mainstream people you might be familiar with from Bing who, who the average person actually doesn't search that much. Um, and so it's actually hard to tell how many users we have, I would argue, in kind of the, the lower single-digit million, something like that. Um, and, yeah, that's basically the size of the scope of the business. I would argue that we're getting close to about 1% search, but to, to the in- intricacies of the search market, those numbers are actually um, hard to determine. <laughs> um, I don't know how much you got into that at Bing. Um, yeah. But we think that our value proposition, you know, basically of real privacy and better answers and cleaner design appeals to easily 5%. And our brand awareness is more like around 7% of the country. So, you know, still 93% of us haven't heard of us. Whereas Bing's brand awareness has got to be close to, you know, three quarters now or something. Um, and so we feel if we can get a brand awareness up, we think our, our, we think our search share will go up significantly. So do, do you think you'll get to the, the 1% market share sometime in the next sometime next year? Yeah, I do. Um, I think we're, we're close to that already. Um, we, again, it's really hard to tell based on, <laughs> on, on various numbers. 
Um, but yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, for people maybe who don't know that much about the search business, 1% sounds really small, but that's a, that's a hugely significant share of the search market, right? Especially yeah, for a business is. with, a, you know, with so, so few employees. Yeah, it is a, it's hard to appreciate the scale, but one way to appreciate the scale is to say, you know, you can think of orders of magnitude 10 times your business. You know, we started at getting, um, around, you know, a thousand searches a month and 10,000, you know, then if you think of those, we went from 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, 10 million, 100 million, and now we're at around 250 million searches a month. Each one of those was a big difference to us, it, you know, in various scale metrics. Um, that's just a sense of how big the search market is. That you can get at 250 million searches a month and still not even be at 1%. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there one thing in your business that you're most excited about right now? Yeah, so... I'm most excited about this concept of instant answer platform. So, you know, we, we launched instant answers. Everyone's familiar with that. You type in like, you know, uh, a celebrity name and you get their basic biographical information on Wikipedia. Um, and, you know, Bing started doing it uh, shortly after we did. They bought like uh, Faircast and those other companies and started doing some cool stuff. And then Google kind of followed. Um, and so now it's, you know, that's the ante is you have to have basic stuff. But what we did is we open sourced the whole thing. We have an open source instant answer platform called DuckDuckHack where any developer in the world can suggest answers and code them and use other people's APIs. So I'm most excited about getting that to work as like a real vibrant community where all this long tail answers start, start popping up um, and, and all sorts of niche hobbies. Like in the last year, Bitcoin answers, uh, the Bitcoin community had made a bunch of answers for DuckDuckGo. And just made the experience for people who are in the Bitcoin community very good. Um, and so I am very excited about that in particular. Okay, Gabriel, it's time for our lightning round. Uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I'd like you to answer them as quickly as possible. Are you ready? All right, shoot. All right. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? Um, treat your... Uh, business as a career treat, treat treat your career as like a career path you're not so that means if you're thinking long term um you have the ability to invest in skills and resources over time you're not just thinking of it as a short-term thing that was a little long-winded i'm gonna try to do better <laughs> <laughs> what book apart from your book would you recommend to our audience and why um hmm. so I recommend uh, this book called Switch. Um, it's one book I read in the last year um, that has a framework of how to get people to you know, think about switching anything, really, switching their behavior. But what it comes down to in business is your custom, you're always just trying to get your customers to switch, switch something they're already doing, their behavior to something, to your behavior. Um, and it, it, it yields a good framework for doing that. What's that one attribute or characteristic uh, in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Analytical thinking. Uh, this gets back to the uh, quote I, I, I did at the beginning of this. Um, I think it, you know, a, a good entrepreneur is really uh, can quickly understand the landscape. They're not kind of analysis paralysis, but they can um, think through all the different kind of um, decision tree paths and come up with a good kind of choice of action given all those even though there's lots of uncertain information 
What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Fancy Hands, which is a virtual assistant tool. Um, and it is a life changer if you commit to it. Basically, you know, you just send any task you want, especially on when you're mobile, you can just record your voice into it and they'll start doing it. So I don't make it, I hardly make any phone calls. I don't do web research for like products and stuff like that. Um, I'll just send it all to fancy hands. If you had to start over tomorrow, how would you go about figuring out that next business opportunity? Ah, so here's what I would do. I would look at the, um, the big trends that we, people think are unfolding over the next decade. Now those are, you know, uh, cryptocurrency, AI, drones, 3D printing. There's a list of like 10 of them. Um, figure out which one, big data is still there. Figure out which ones um, I'm actually personally passionate about that I wouldn't mind, you know, spending a decade on. Um, and then uh, do an ideation process within that piece and try to find, you know, a, a problem or a secret or a thesis in there. Um, and then, you know, start running tests on those ideation ideas. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, I used to dye my hair a lot. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> I'll take that one. All right. And, and finally, what is uh, one of your most important passions outside of your work? Um, I would say, base. I, I can't not say family again. Because <laughs> yep. be in trouble. Just, yeah, I know. <laughs> and if you just go by time allocation, I'm basically just here or with my kids <laughs> and wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Those are great answers. Um, Gabriel, I want to thank you for joining me today and sharing your experiences and insights. And thank you for letting us get to know you a little better personally as well. Now, if folks want to find out more about DuckDuckGo, they can go to DuckDuckGo.com. And if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Twitter. So my um, handle is Yegg, Y-E-G-G. Awesome. Gabriel, thanks again, and I wish you continued success. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Cheers. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gabriel Weinberg of DuckDuckGo. You can get to the show notes for this episode by going to conversionaid.com slash 33 where you'll find all the links and resources that we discussed today. In the next episode, I'm going to have Gabriel back, and we're going to talk about his book, uh, which is called Traction, A Startup Guide to Getting Customers, which he co-authored with Justin Mears. There's a ton of useful advice there for startups, and so we're going to chat more about that and hopefully share some valuable lessons with you guys. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Omer Khan, O-M-E-R-K-H-A-N, or you can email me at omer at conversionaid.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, then I'd really appreciate you taking a couple of minutes just to submit a review on iTunes and subscribing to the show if you haven't already done so. Just go to conversionaid.com slash iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to Conversion Aid, the podcast that shows you how to take your business to the next level and create software that sells. But things don't have to end here. Head over to conversionaid.com slash VIP and get yourself on the free VIP list where we share special insider content and news about upcoming episodes. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.